Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. We invite you back this evening for our evening service where we will be blessed to be ministered to by our own Reverend Blau. So we look forward to that at 5.30 tonight. Micah chapter 7. This is God's holy word. He gives it to his people for our good, to build us up, and to lead us on in righteousness. Micah 7. Verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. Speak through your word. Cleanse your servant. Come in the power of your spirit. Summon us into the presence of the Almighty. Even as we look to ourselves and realize the dearth of hope or merit before you. Be with us. Be with us as a congregation that we might grasp hold of these glorious truths and we might live by them, that we might make Christ our only boast and that we might make the cross the place where, to which we ever look to make our plea. May grace reign in our hearts. May grace reign in our homes and in our marriages. May grace reign in the relationships and the fellowships that we have even amongst ourselves. May grace reign as we interact with those around us. We give you all of the glory. Many of us are hurt, afflicted, sick. Many of us experiencing the trials of the valley of the shadow of death. So many needs which only you know. And so come and minister to us according to those needs. You are the great physician. And we are sick. We need your help. We need your touch. We need your comfort. Speak through your word. We give you all of the glory for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In our world, you often see a a crippling of the, the notion that we can become better through means of discipline and difficulty. That we can learn, make improvement, understand from our mistakes, move forward, do better. And we see in many ways, just because of the way that society often becomes preoccupied in the therapeutic, making sure that we 
that we guard how everyone feels in each and every moment, that we cut ourselves off from that. So the, the, the governor in California this past week signed into law a bill that makes it illegal to suspend disruptive children in school. Makes it illegal to suspend disruptive children in school. What I would like to see is whether or not disruptive behavior behavior goes up as a result of this. I'm not an expert on uh, the behavior of students in school, but I know something about the human heart, and, and I know what can happen when you guarantee a group of people that they will not be punished a certain way if uh, they do something. And so I would like to see what happens as a result of this. It seems as though you're giving uh, human sinfulness an opportunity to capitalize on uh, something that they've received. We're often hesitant to speak of the, the consequences of our own sinful behavior. For the unbeliever, of course, we, we don't enjoy thinking about the judgment, the terrible future that awaits those who don't trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, those who don't rest in God's grace. And even for ourselves, the, 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 the turmoil that comes as a natural result of bringing upon ourselves God's fatherly displeasure, to have the, the light of his countenance turned away from us as his children, something that doesn't affect our judicial standing with God, right? You can't be saved from your sin and then no longer saved. But having the light of God's countenance turned away. Uh, those of us who, who grew up with a father and a mother in the home caring for us, Uh, We know what it's like to let down our parents and to feel that that relationship is out of joint. It's off kilter. And to to, to deal with anything like me, having your stomach churn, knowing that your parents are disappointed in what you have done. The, the, The same can be true for our spiritual lives. We live out of accord with what we are called to be in Christ and God's fatherly displeasure is brought upon us. And we may describe that as anguish. We may describe that as, as turmoil. We don't necessarily know exactly how to describe it. But we know when we come before our God, we know that something is off. We need peace. We need Him to speak peace to us. As we read in Lamentations, as we remind ourselves through the hymns that we've been singing, there is a purpose to all of this, right? God does not willingly afflict the children of men for no purpose. It, it is God is not a parent who does not discipline his child. A, a child who is not disciplined is a child who is not loved. God has promised to take the hammer and the chisel and the file to his people to constantly build us into what he wants us to be. This is what in the Gospel of John is described as pruning. Pruning, and the branches are pruned, cut off certain pieces of it so that other parts of the branch may flourish. And so, as we think about, and, and, and I believe it is probably the case that because of just the, the age in which we live, where heavenly mindedness and spiritual mindedness is really at an all time low, we can become rather good at pushing these things away and not even addressing them. But I believe it does become undeniable when we make preparation for the Lord's Supper. Those wanting to do so rightly and examine themselves, can't help but feel some semblance of God's fatherly displeasure brought upon them because they're considering more intentionally 
their sin and their sinfulness. But as we read in Lamentations 3, the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. God does it not to hurt us, but to mend us and to make us come to him. If, we, if you're a human being who doesn't ever feel hunger, you're not going to come to the table. So God uh, afflicts us with a certain sense of, of being downcast, spiritual hunger, so that we might come to find our nourishment in Christ alone. This is what God is doing when we're undergoing these spiritual afflictions. In the prophet uh, Micah, what we're reading is the speaking against the sins of Israel and Judah, the, the, the judgment of God coming against his people. And yet, what shines forth is the mercy and the grace and the faithfulness of God. This is the end of the book of Micah, the very last passage. What has the last word? It's mercy. It is forgiveness. God will make his people to see their sin, to recognize it, and to own it. But he will not punish them to the fullest extent to which their sin demands. And that is something utterly central about God. That's what we have to understand about our God, is that he is filled with matchless mercy. So we remember this morning the mercy of God. And we come as weary souls who need this assurance. And we find that assurance in our surety. As we go into anguish over our sin, we fly to Christ, the one who guarantees God's forgiveness. We even see here in this passage uh, pictures, whispers of him as our prophet and our priest and our king. So first, the God of matchless mercy. Two main blessings connected to the mercy of God in this life upon his people. And we are certainly talking about particular benefits that are afforded to God's people particularly. He will have mercy upon Jacob and Abraham, the remnant of his inheritance. What a blessing it is to be part of God's people. How important it is to, to join yourself to the church which Christ has instituted. But two main benefits. First, that sins are forgiven, they're wiped away, and the power of sin is weakened or conquered. We see both of those coming forth as particular aspects of God's mercy. Your sins are wiped off the slate and the power of your sin is subdued. Two main benefits of God's mercy, we call those justification and sanctification. Justification being declared righteous, being declared innocent. Sanctification being made pure throughout the whole of your life. The first benefit is, to, is justification, having our sins forgiven. To be justified in Christ is to be as good as glorified. It's a, a once-for-all declaration coming back in time from the day of judgment. Right? Those who are justified, who trust in Christ through the gospel, they are declared innocent and righteous. It cannot be changed. It's the heart of the gospel, we might say. And also in the Christian life, we experience not only these sins being wiped off the slate, but the power of sin being lessened and trampled underfoot. And the, the truth of this as God's activity, the God of matchless mercy, causes the prophet to cry out, who is like you? Where is there a God like you? I could search high and low and I would never find a God that is like this God. The gods of mythology 
use human sin as something to exploit for their own gain. The gods of Greek and Roman mythology and other mythological systems, they're always kind of magnified human beings. They need something. They need to use the mistakes of others for their own benefit. God is nothing like that. He didn't even need to create us to experience the joy and the love of fellowship that the Trinity was experiencing from all eternity. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, Psalm 113 says. What's so amazing here is that the one who is not equaled in power and strength stoops down to help, stoops down to show mercy. If this does not strike you as amazing, either your view of God is much too small or your view of man is much too big. That this God exercises mercy upon his creatures. There's no reason why he would feel obligated to do it, but he delights to show mercy. He loves to do it. It's it's what he enjoys to do. That's It's what he enjoys doing. That's what this passage impresses upon us. It's in the prophet Isaiah, the the, the prophet actually uses the picture of a a mother. That God's compassion is like unto a mother who naturally feels this extraordinary compassion towards the children who emerge from her womb. Experienced that a couple times this week even as a husband and a wife, my wife and myself, to see that a couple kids who had a couple situations need to be addressed and to see the, the magnifying of her compassion towards these young children who have, who have come from her womb. God has that compassion towards his children. More famously and more regularly in Scripture, of course, God is not just pictured as a father, but called our Heavenly Father. Does a, does a Heavenly Father, a perfect Father, look upon His child who is begging for forgiveness, and does He deny it? No, He will be filled with compassion. He delights to do it. In other words, God does not show mercy begrudgingly. He does not show mercy hesitantly. He does not show mercy unwillingly. He takes joy in showing mercy and wiping away sin and reducing the power of sin. He takes joy in being loyal to his people. That's what the the language here is. He takes joy in chesed. That's the Hebrew word covenant faithfulness. Sometimes you'll, uh, you'll see it in scripture where uh, in English versions we had to mash two words together. Loving kindness. We had to make up a word for it. God delights in showing loving kindness, covenant faithfulness. Considered with sin in the backdrop, you almost might say that since God pictures himself as a husband to his people, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, it's like a husband taking great joy in remaining faithful to his marriage covenant, even in the midst of a wife who has been unfaithful to her vow. And here is where, when we're considering God, when we're making preparation to come to the Lord's table, we're reading preparatory forms, we're saying prayers of confession, we're examining ourselves, here is where we often do ourselves no favors because we reason from ourselves to God. And we say, if I were in God's position, I would not extend forgiveness to me. I've shown myself to be unfaithful. I've shown myself uh, to run after the world and the flesh and the devil. I am unforgivable. 
I cannot be forgiven. Why would God show his mercy to me? How often we've been wronged by someone and we say, well, what is the way that I can kind of go through this as some semblance of, of, of a Christian and yet make sure that I don't have to interact with this person anymore? They've wronged me. I'm going to write them off. Right? I'm going to maintain some kind of rapport, but I don't want anything to do with this person explicitly anymore. They are dead to me. How often our sinful hearts reason that way, and so we reason from that to God. But this is what you need to remember. You need to remember whom you're speaking about. You're not speaking about a mere man. We're speaking about God. The God who is in the heavens and who does all that he pleases. He only does that which brings him great delight. And what does he delight to do? He delights to show mercy. He delights to forgive, to pass by iniquity, to pardon transgression. God, here's, here's the truth you need to grasp onto today. God is more ready to forgive then you are to sin. When you're stunned by your heart's willingness to fall into sin, you need to remind yourself, God is more ready to forgive than you are to sin. He does not save us. God knows exactly the condition of our hearts. And we are not saved, we are not justified with our indwelling sin and all the effects of it being completely wiped away. God delights in showing mercy. He delights in pouring out his mercies, which are new every morning. This does not mean that we delight in living in sin. It means that we delight in taking comfort in the God of matchless mercy. And it's only held together in Christ. As we come to the table, remind yourselves of that. It's only held together in Christ because the God who delights to show mercy cannot delight in wickedness. Psalm 5. You are a God who does not delight, same word, In wickedness. He delights to show mercy, but he does not delight in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. And so we have there the evil in the heart of man and the love and the forgiveness of God. They come right up to one another, and there we find Christ. There we find the place where it is resolved. The price tag upon all of us was infinite wrath. Knowing the price, Christ paid the ransom. So that when God takes delight in showing us mercy, he's not taking delight in, willing, in wickedness, he's not adopting wickedness unto himself, but imputed to us by faith is the merits of Christ's blood and the merits of Christ's life. He is prophet, priest, and king. Here we have in this passage a declaration that God is a God of mercy. He forgives and he delights to do so. You need that promise. You need to hear it. We see that... Christ, there are whispers here of our great Redeemer as our High Priest. He came the one, to be the one who was our advocate. Imagine showing up. Imagine having uh, no money and, and you're due in court one day. And you can't afford representation, someone to argue your case. And you know that you are doomed. And you show up, courthouse, and out of nowhere, there is the greatest lawyer in the world who says, I'm representing you today. You sit there. And you don't have to say a thing. You sit there, you don't have to say it. That's what Christ does. Our advocate, our surety in the court of heaven, constantly interceding for us. There's an ongoing, 
The, the sense in which God's mercy is ongoing in this passage. It doesn't just happen once. It continues. He delights to continue doing it. And that happens because we have an advocate, a surety in heaven. Prophet and priest. And then also king. God's mercy, that in which he delights. What does he delight to do? He delights in reducing the power of that sin, in treading them under his feet. He delights in ruling and reigning over sin. We may picture all kinds of enemies that we have in this world, but in this passage, the enemy is sin. The enemy is that which, which had a home inside of us and whose power was taken away in Christ. Two aspects to our sanctification And God's ruling over sin. The one is progressive. We are made progressively more pure in this life. And then there is final sanctification. Which will not happen until this life on earth is finished. When this mortal life ceases. Sin is done away. It will never have another word to say to us. Who die in Christ. But look at this passage to see. Who is the one who rules over sin? Who is the one who reigns over sin? Who is the one who treads our sins under his feet? Who is the one who casts them into the heart of the sea? It's the God of matchless mercy. It's not you, it's not me. We are not the ones who do this. And when we come to the Lord's table, we are tempted to turn that formula around. And if we're particularly confident with how we've been living, we might say, uh, I'm the one who's ruling over my sin. I am worthy to come. Or, if we feel unworthy, we think to ourselves, I need to tread my own sins underfoot for a while, and then I will come. No, God afflicts us with a spiritual anguish under the weight of our sin so that we might come to Him, so that we might feel our hunger, so that we might come to Christ and rest in Him by faith, because He, as our King, will tread our sins underfoot. One way you can examine yourself as you come to the table is examine yourself as to how good you have been as soil. Have you received the planted seed of God's word and the gospel? Have you received the water and the sunlight of God's grace that a true and lasting fruit might come out? What are we? We're soil. We receive all that God declares to us. And that is where the effects and the results come through. Healthy soil yields plenty, not thorns and thistles. So he will tread our sins underfoot. He is the one who does it as his king. And then finally, the end of this life, the picture there is all of our sins will be cast into the heart of the sea. Uh, Every Israelite would know exactly what is going on here. Pictures of of Egypt, Pharaoh and his armies in the Red Sea. In Exodus chapter 14, God says to his people, you will never hear uh, or see the Egyptians again. They won't say anything to you anymore. You'll never hear from them. That's the promise of what happens to our sin when this life is over. That is the great hope that we have. Look forward to that day. Look forward to that day, uh, even as we think against the way of the world, having our hope in eternity. So a couple of thoughts 
Uh, First, if you are a believer and you're not engaged in this battle against your sin, look afresh to the work of Christ today, your prophet and your priest and your king. Rest in the promises that he gives to us. This God who delights to show mercy. This God who delights to diminish the power of sin. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And secondly, if you are faithfully engaging in this battle. So if you're not engaging, please do so and look to Christ afresh. If you are, use the mercy of God. That is our greatest weapon. Use the matchless mercy of God. Prize it. Prize it. It is the mercy of mercies. There is no benefit that can even compare for one second to having your sins forgiven in this life. The God of mercy, he shows you the mercy of mercies. Prize it. Love it. Secondly, use it for your comfort. Use it for the reason you come to God for worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all of his benefits, for he heals your diseases and he cleanses your sin. And lastly, imitate it. If God has forgiven you your debt of millions, how can you not forgive the debt of pennies that you own against your neighbor? Prize it, use it for comfort, and imitate it. Run to Christ and rest in him this morning. Take delight in the fact that God takes delight in showing mercy to you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise, and we ask that you would bless this time as we gather around the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. If you would go to page